0: So welcome everyone, welcome to a talk on fear. One of the fundamentals uh, of the Dharma that we're exploring last uh, talk was on love. And I wanted to pair these two because I think we often uh, think of one as being the opposite of the other. And you could make a case for that, but I'd like to make a case for a little broader definition. Uh, But I have to take you uh, into what the Dharma practice is all about in order to show that distinction of definition, if I could. Uh, And so what we're doing uh, in any authentic spiritual practice, an authentic, I mean, one that follows the true course of uh, towards emptiness, is we're uh, looking very diligently at the forms of our life, including the form of the person who is looking, and we're finding out whether it holds any validity for us. It it, certainly holds a conceptual place in our society. It holds the central conceptual place in our society. But when we actually look uh, beyond or beneath the concepts of what, we're saying about ourselves or saying about the things in our life, what is there? And as we begin to make that journey of exploration into the thingness, the forms, the expressions of life, as they appear uh, in multiple ways, and also the person who is formed within these appearances, we begin to have more and more doubt. And this is the essence of doubt and uh, the, the substantiality of what we have thought life to be. And so you could say that as the exploration continues, we become more vague. It doesn't mean that we have lost our knowledge base or that we float around in some kind of... Uh, lost way at all. That's not the vagueness that I'm talking about. It's the vagueness of distinction, the vagueness of definition, the vagueness of determination, of being able to say, I am here and you are there. Uh, Not the vagueness of being able to say no or yes, or even one's place in life, or being able to completely maneuver within our lives at all. Not that vagueness. So this sense of moving from a very defined, conceptually defined and certain place called me to a less certain but equally as resolute place in emptiness. That is the spiritual journey. And we have to sort of take apart Each facet of the forms that we have believed in and validated in order to see the transparency of those forms over time. So we start with the body. We did this for two years in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, so I'm not going to (laughs) belabor the point here. There's some 40-some talks on the web that you (laughs) are always welcome to go listen to. Uh, But basically, uh this, this sense of myself gathered as a formation, the belief that I am center in the world and all the observations and data is coming in this way, uh, is because I am formed to believe that. And when we start looking at what it is that's formed, we start having questions about that belief. And as we become less, as we become more transparent we feel to a greater extent some sense of the sacred. It becomes accessible. When we're very well formed, very defined, very reactive, very certain of everything we do through our opinions and knowledge, there isn't too much room for the sacred to enter. Because there's only room for the forms of life to be there. And so we've kind of excluded or cl- crowded out the sacred because of the certainty we have in form. So when we develop mo- less certainty within that form, we are uh, seeing through some of the hardness of our definitions, then we have access. The light that comes through is the sacred, the quality of, of sacredness. So that's. That's the way the spiritual journey goes, and you can approach it through many different paths and traditions, but that's basically how all paths have to go. And so the last time I uh, spoke on love, love is another definition for that light, that sense of presence. uh, Presence is a beautiful word, I think, because it... It holds, uh, I don't know, it just, it somehow unites in a way that uh, words like awareness don't quite unite, but presence seems to be a very beautiful word. And presence is, from a different uh, perspective, love. From one perspective, it's compassion, from one perspective, it's multiple different things depending upon what arises from it given the circumstances that it's under, But when it's just being still, you could say that what emanates from it is, you could say, loving presence. Loving presence. And so it's love, in this definition, as I'm using it, as I used it uh, a couple of weeks ago and as I'm using it tonight, is really that state of transparency. It's that Willingness not to validate the conceptual world, the imagined world of concepts, and to live within the transparency and and uh, and uh, interconnectedness of life. So there's something beautiful that happens in the course of meditation that takes us from. Formed love, formed love is what each of us as formed individuals think we, how we know love. But if you look at what happens, so let me talk a little bit about formed love, you'll see that formed love is really encased in fear. Because when you have the sense of me and any object that you treasure, you have a certain sense of of grasping on that object from the sense of me and that sense of me tries to uh, embellish it, it tries to hold on to it, it tries to make it last, it's always wondering whether it has enough of it. So if you put love as the object that we're trying to embellish, it, there's a fear tone. Do I have enough? How am I doing? Maybe I wasn't kind enough in that moment. Maybe I wasn't loving enough in my attention. Maybe, you know, I should try to get more love. It's always weighing in with kind of quantifying love. That's what forms do. Forms don't feel interconnected. They feel disconnected. And anything that feels disconnected worries about the state of being disconnected and what it, what's, others are observing within that disconnection and so it tries to embellish the disconnection by bringing in more and more mind states and objects and just forms of the world so that I can look better. I can be prettier, I can be nicer, I can be lower loving, I can be all that. So it tries to embellish itself. But that's, that's on the far left hand continuum of our starting practice and formed love is it, when it's contained or held within a kind of incrustation of fear, you know that's where jealousy comes in. It's where, you know, oh, I'm so I'm so protective of this love. I want this love. I'm afraid though, that the object of my love doesn't love me or it's all based on quantity and will she love me in the future or does she love me? No? all of that. You know, it's scarcity. It's based upon poverty a poverty of spirit and so there's this feeling of of never having enough of it is fear and so fear and love when the, when love is formed from the sense of me it's cased in fear and you can't really have love formed from the sense of i without it because you're always questioning in the very state of being a formed person, whether you have sufficient amount of it. And uh, so you, there's never a settling with any object that you are grasping at that you want. And love is certainly one of those things that we do grasp. So you might say, you know, that uh, love uh, in the beginning is really, uh held within fear. Now, as the sense of formation begins to become more transparent, as the spiritual journey moves, then the possessiveness around objects begins to lessen. You give up grasping or fearing because you realize that the grasping and fearing is forming you me, and you don't see the truth of that formation in the same way that you once believed in it, so you start giving up the grasping of fear because it doesn't make any sense to continue to do so. When you do that, the love comes out of its encasement of fear. It's no longer held or boxed or contained within fear and becomes infinite, spreads out wide, wide, becomes available. Right? And at that point, fear, which is always formed, fear can exist except in formation. Fear doesn't get wide. Fear stays narrow, stays concerned, stays contracted. That's the only thing fear knows to do is to pull you into form. It says, be careful, don't go out that way. You'll be unformed, you'll be unknown, you'll be susceptible to insecurities and uncertainties. Stay within what you know. And so it just tries to keep holding you within the solid image that you know yourself to be. And so that's what fear's message will always and has always been. So it can't move with love because love is not of that ilk. It does not stay within the form. In fact, it's limited within form. It seeks to breathe wide and, and uh, with breadth. And uh, when it starts doing so, it feels, it feels that. It feels the possibility, new possibilities. And so that's that's what love is. But we're here really to look at fear. Because unless we understand fear thoroughly, you can see that our love can't move beyond it. It can only move beyond something when we fully recognize what it is that's con- contained that's containing it, that's holding it back from the full embodiment of what it could be. And so to really understand love, you we do have to understand fear. We have to understand what limits love. In that sense, we're on the right path when we pull our conversation and our inquiry and our investigation into looking at fear. Now, most of us, culturally, are are not happy about I mean, we're not comfortable looking at fear. In fact, uh, one of the most difficult expressions for any of us to say is to say that I am afraid. It's one that certainly the males of us have learned very early on, at least in my case, that you don't say that. You know, that you bring forth the arrogance necessary to surmount your fear rather than to own it and to admit it and to acknowledge it. And so we're up against a a tremendous cultural imperative that being a coward or the presence of fear defines us in a certain way. Uh, And that if we had it together as a human being, we would never admit that we were afraid, that somehow fear should have vanished from our psyche. And yet, may I say, there's no one in this room in which fear does not arise, including the speaker. So we are essentially, and this is an important point, afraid of being afraid. Now the reason that's an important point is that often behind every arising of emotion within every manifestation of an emotion. We have an opinion about whether that emotion is something that's presentable or not. If it's anger, it's not presentable. If it's love, or tranquility, or calm, or serenity, or kindness, then it is presentable. And the, the components, the, 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 the uh, uh, emotions that are not presentable, Have a fear traced to them. We're afraid of our anger. We're afraid of our impatience. We're afraid of our annoyance. And it's not so much the actual mind state of annoyance or impatience itself that makes it so difficult to acknowledge and look at these states of mind. It's the fear we have of them that makes it difficult. That's the added component to the states of mind that we are bringing to it through our conditioning that make it so devastating to say, you know, I'm angry. Because of our past, because of the circumstances, because of whatever anger has meant in our lives, we've been unwilling or unable to look at it. And when you're unwilling or unable to look at anything because of the fear we have of it, it remains torturously inside full empowered through our fear and will inevitably find a way to access our consciousness. There's no way to smother it out of existence through repression. It will show itself as surely as night follows day. And so what we have to do is to tackle first the fear we have of these different emotions so that we can have some sense of that the emotion itself, when not laced with fear, is really painless and selfless and harmless. But as long as it has that tinge of fear, we're never going to know that. And so the first thing we really have to do is to sort out the different, uh, the different qualities of what the emotional state is. Yes, there's anger, but there's also the fear of the anger. Yes, there's fear, but there's also fear of fear. Now, I just went through a period of time, started about uh, maybe five years ago, and went for a couple of years. No, started in 2002, so however many years that is, and went for a few years. So uh, it, where uh, I had some difficulty uh, breathing at night, would find myself gasping for air and waking up with that apnea and uh, being afraid to go back to sleep because I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to breathe if I did. So there was a conditioned, a conditioned tendency in me to fear sleeping. Well, how, how long can you get by on that fear? Right? So I had, to take, I had to take the fear on. And so the first thing I had to do when I realized that I was afraid of going back to sleep is give up the idea that I was going to go back to sleep because that's what kept me from being available to the fear is that I really wanted to go back to sleep. And so I had to sit up in bed and I had to wake myself up sufficiently and I had to forget about going back to sleep. And once I had eliminated that as a possibility, then psychically I was available for the fear itself. And what happened over the course of a number of episodes of this is that it didn't bother me at all that the fear was arising. And I don't mean to say that in any kind of um, Pollyannish way. I really didn't mind it arising. As long as I wasn't wanting to go back to sleep in which case, I did mind it arising because it competed with my sleep. Then I didn't mind having the fear. I was not afraid of the fear. I was not afraid of the fear. Now, if you're, we're not afraid of the fear. The fear can only last so long. Even though it's fear, the, there's no secondary reaction to it. There's no like, I gotta get. How do I get out of this state of mind? It's no. There's no panic associated with it. And so I would sit there on the bed and I would just let it do whatever it's going to do and I would not add any narrative to it, No, nothing. I, I just, out of presence, it would try to arise and out of presence, it could not substantiate itself. And the presence would have never, could never have arisen had there been Any flinching or aversion in relationship to the fear itself. So, but once that aversion was gone, then fear could arise within that presence. It's very interesting. It's never the state of mind that dissipates the presence, it's our reactivity that dissipates the presence. So, anyway, it was a long story short is that it is a very it's a it's a very interesting emotion when it isn't feared, and there, it, it's, there's a tremendous uh, energy and resolve that comes. I, for lack of a better word, it, it's not some uh, egoic resolve. It's simply, wow, I'm staying with this thing. You know, this is. I'm just gonna. I'm staying with this. And the confidence that comes from repetitive exposures uh, is quite revealing in terms of what it tells us about fear, which I'll get to uh, in a moment. But what I realized was that all aversion is really a variant of fear. That is, it's sort of the glue that holds our psyche together as a meaningful entity. And, you know, if we know our history as a species, when we were faced with the threats of other animals eating us, we had to have fear. We couldn't idly walk to the tree as a lion was charging at us. We had to have something that compelled us to that tree gave us an override uh, and the adrenaline rush necessary to do whatever feats, physical feats we needed to beat the lion to the tree. And so you see that historical uh, component, both physiologically and psychologically remaining in our psyche and the sense of survival is still very much there as it probably was in the opening days of, of our, of our ancestry, where it feels so compelling. Fear is so compellingly true that every the cells like grip in unison, and they're not. There's no there's no argument here. You get up that tree. Period. Right, So we're up, a treme- we're up against a tremendously um, genetic formed disposition when we talk about fear. That, but let me, let me just look at a few facets of fear that you may not have thought of, which actually are more inviting. One facet is that fear could be perceived as the love of self because it was the protective mechanism that kept us from going into insecure and uncertain territory. We needed it. And so in some ways, it was what we needed to survive. And so it had our survival at stake. And so if we change our perception of fear to see that it actually is something that has our heart, so to speak, it's, it certainly is has wrong view, <laughs> but it has our it has our survival uh, as 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 what it's trying to offer us, <clears throat> and it's very it's helpful because you know you, especially in spiritual the spiritual journey we fear we keep running up against it systematically, and I'll get to that point in a moment, but. We have a kind of opinion of fear that we, you know, that it's kind of where we fail. Where we're afraid, we fa- I, I'm afraid here. You know, I just, they say it like it's an insurmountable boundary. I'm, this is where I, this is where I cannot go. This is where I'm. I'm afraid to go. But if you look at it in terms of survival, anywhere we haven't been is gonna be fearful. So, Hopefully, we are expanding psychically and spiritually into areas that we've never been. So guess what's going to happen all along the way? We're going to feel threatened and exposed and vulnerable, all of which are part of fear, as we venture out from the safety areas of our conditioning. Is it any wonder that many of our, much of the spiritual journey is laced with moments of fear? In fact, it should be in the sense that if we are willing to move beyond the edges of what we have known ourselves to be, our definitions, When ever we investigate a definition, you are putting it under threat. And the concept of I feels that threat egoically, we feel that threat. If you put the lens of questioning or investigation or inquiry and looking, examining what you are, you're putting yourself at threat not to be what you are. That's the threat. And so to fear, it's the same as a lion attacking you. You're under threat. Because if the lion gets you, you're not going to be what you were before the (laughs) lion. And neither is the investigation going to allow you to be what you think you are after it gets finished. So it's the same threat to the sense of fear. So we are putting ourselves under the lens of threat, which is an interesting way. So it's trying to keep us shaped, formed, distinct, defined. And we're not doing it. We're not going along that that way. And so we're up against the very genetic disposition that secures us as a person. So you can expect fear at points, at times, not all the time, not every time you sit down Are you're going to... But you can expect to have lots of rubs with fear. Now sometimes people don't have that much occasionally, but not that much because what happens is that you go two feet out and then you come back in three feet and you go four feet out and you come back in five feet and you go six feet out and you come back in two feet. So it's a little bit like waiting out and coming back, waiting out and coming back. And after you've done that enough, there's not much fear in crossing that boundary anymore. And when, after a number of episodes of feeling the safety of that crossing, fear relinquishes its need to feel that you're moving into an unsafe area. And so too is the truth, that's the truth of presence. At some point it gives up trying to seduce you back into yourself at the sake of your being present. And that's when it gets fun. Because then you enjoy Presence more than you fear, fear. And then, when the when the equation changes, then nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. There's this deep love. I mean, the only thing that's you see, love is guiding us the whole time. The heart is just trying to seek its true value, its true worth. And it knows that you ain't its true worth. <laughs> not that you're worthless, but egoically you're pretty close to that. <laughs> we all are. I, I don't mean that in a trash sense of way, but we're, we're just not what we think we are. And so we have to love ourselves. We have to love the adventure. The love. The love, the excursion, the adventure of moving out like a Lewis and Clark adventure, despite the complete unknown that that adventure holds, and so it 's the heart that pulls us that way, not your mind, your mind, it has no intention of going there, and it 's the very component egoic the egoic mind is the very component that keeps pulling you back in, so you can see the different organs at play here and Life knows that you are much more than you have assigned yourself to be. And it really wants the best from you as well. And so does fear, except fear doesn't know what love knows because fear is always formed. Only love is unformed. And so only love is a true guidance of this thing because it also knows what it's like to be formed because it's been formed through fear before and romantic love and that sort of thing, but it also knows what love is unformed and it wants you to have the freedom of that complete, total, encompassing love. You get a sense of where, you see? So that, then the guidance system becomes, uh, it doesn't become mapped out because that's the mind keeps trying to know its terrain it's the GPS system love just wants to go it just wants to it just wants to include it just wants to keep holding its hands out which is the true meaning I think of the Sermon on the Mount it's everything everything all things everything everything come all things I, that reminds me of a of a story when I was a, I was a young uh, just got out of school college in the 1960s, and I was hitchhiking across the country. It was at the time when you could do that, and uh, I got a I, I was stuck somewhere like in North Dakota, right? And somebody picks me up, and believe me, I do not question who's in the car. Just that the car is stopped, I'll get in. I don't care if somebody with <laughs> So I got in this car, but as soon as I got in, I knew I'd made a mistake even in North Dakota, because the guy—it uh, was a 500-mile trip. He was taking me 500 miles, so I was with him for a long period of time. And he was—and I don't mean this in any kind of uh, uh, detrimental—but he was a—he ve- was a, re- a Christian. He was f- fervent. He was a, of a. Of a sect of Christianity that was there to convert you, and for 500 miles, so hours, I was in the car, and he kept. It was before uh, people were told not to uh, do their uh, texting on uh, in the. So he, but he had his book, his Bible, and he would be driving, reading his Bible. <laughs> Well, which is the equivalent of texting, <laughs> And f- moving through and telling me what what I was if I wasn't going to join this particular sect. And after I don't know maybe eight to ten hours of that, you go, God, just let me sign up. I'll just, just... <laughs> I don't even care anymore. It's like the it's like the pol- politics, right? It's like Two years, I don't care. Just I'll just mark anybody, you know. Just, who, like that. So when I before I got out of the car, you know, he had me completely uh, convinced. I signed up. On my, he had a clipboard with signatures on it. I was number fifteen. Hopefully, I was. I don't know if it was fifteen that day or what, but anyway. So I was. I was. Uh, and and so. I got out of there, and I I felt like I should go, like, proselytize and tell people. (laughs) But, you know, after a few hours, it just kind of settled back down to normalcy. But it was all fear response. I realized that for all those hours, he just kept inciting fear. You know, like, if you don't do this, this is what, and you're going here and this and this. And uh, it does wear you out. It does. Uh, So some of you who were raised in that atmosphere, I understand that it may still be percolating even (laughs) decades later. But this is a method, this is a... This is not a tradition that breeds fear, or proselytizing, or converting, or belief. It's free of all the tones of fear. Because once you have a a belief-based religion then you have fear, because a belief can be uprooted by another belief. And so you have to gather people around you who are also convinced in similar ways and argue and be angry, because the reactivity assures that the assumption that you are basing yourself is not very deep, it's very shallow. And it can be uprooted, so that's where the argument and all of that comes in. But this is not that kind of a tradition. This is based upon actually seeing for oneself. So there's no, after you see for oneself, you realize everyone has to see for yourself, so there's no proselytizing at all. I don't try to convince anybody. If they want to come to the beginning class or this class, they can come. If they don't want to come, that's fine too. Be careful of any religious, religion or tradition that is fear-based and not realized. Just be aware of that. It's going to be a limitation on you. And so you're going to have to be an argument if you are in a fear-based religion. There will be argument. There will be aggression. There will be violence. It has to be. Okay, so fear will be part of our journey. Now, there's also an element of fear uh, that takes us to clarity and respect. That, That it's not just a trashed emotion, you know, that has no relevance. If you can't swim, there should be some fear in relationship to water. So that if you're going to cross a stream or try to be in a boat, you better have, you better take preparation necessary so that with clarity, you can have contingencies if you fall in or whatever it is, right? And so that's just an example of how fear can be used as a cue, as a message that takes us to a deeper respect for the elements that we are engaged in, right? Nothing wrong with that, it's helpful to have that. And spiritually, you can also use fear as a cue that you are on the edge or on the brink of a boundary that you are about to cross. And whether you want to cross that or not, fear will hold a narrative that says be careful. Now it'll hold that same narrative with you being at the side of a pool. So you have to discern and be clear enough to know the differences between those two messages the boundary, the message of fear at a psychic boundary is, will be as adamant as the message of fear at a poolside. So it takes some discernment, uh, some sanity within us to be able to decipher those two, two qualities of fear and decide that one I can cross and one I need to take the necessary precautions if I'm going to swim. So we start learning the nuances of fear and what, what fear's messages are and start working in accordance to the actuality of reality rather than just the fear response and having a single, having a single contraction to every fear response. Uh, and that takes some wisdom to be able to decipher those two. Now, meta... Oh... <laughs> meditation this was the heart of the talk <laughs> five minutes left ago uh, meditation is supposed to provide a rest stop it's supposed to take us to a place of quietude where there is the absence of, of an invested narrative where the narrative isn't driving the action, where the sitting isn't being driven by your thinking. That's what meditation is supposed to take us to. Okay? And so what fear is, is that it never stops. Fear refuses to stop. So meditation and fear are in, fear is in movement. All states of mind are in movement because when they are invested in as a wanting or a fearing, they contain a movement of thinking that wants something other than what I have here or doesn't want something that is here. That's movement. That's mind movement. Meditation is supposed to take us to the present moment in which we abide as Reality as things actually are. But along comes fear, and fear says, No, I'm, get going. Don't stop here. You have to move. So the sense of meditation and the compelling voice of fear are at odds to one another. So what can we do? Well, presence, presence think of presence as a space in the room that holds all movement within that space. So if we are present to fear, fear which says don't stop here or desire, the opposite of fear, in fact those two feed each other what you are afraid you don't have, you want, and what you want you're afraid of not having. Those two are are really the same side of the coin. So when we are present, when we are more established in the stopping of meditation, and this the arresting of the movement of, of investing in thought, fear may arise, but it has, it's being held within the complete stopping of the space in which it arises. That's presence. That's presence. Now it has no traction. It only has traction if it can get you to think and assert a further narrative into what it, is a, uh, 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 what it is proposing, which is for you to move and get out of there. But if you don't buy that scenario that I have to move, and the movement is always in the future. So really buying into fear is to buying into the future. It's saying, don't stay here, now is not safe, get up, move, go anywhere because this particular present is going to change into something that is going to be tragic if you stay the ground. Okay, so that's the story that it will always have in more or less detail than that and probably with a lot of adrenaline and a lot of psychic rush and a lot of belief in that story. So it's, it's got a lot of power but it doesn't have the power of presence. In fact, if we are well-tuned to presence, we extract the power that fear runs on, which is the power of the time, of future timing, of needing you to be in form, running from here, and it settles itself into just the presence of now. So you see, it's not an argument. The presence of now doesn't argue with fear. It just holds it. Guess how it holds it? With love. Because it realizes that it's a voice that is trying to protect the organism, but it has the discerning wisdom that it knows it doesn't need that protection anymore. And the form of you does not have that discerning wisdom. Only the presence of you has that discerning wisdom. That's why if you stay in form, fear will will forever lead you astray. The form of you, which is tied to the narrative, believes the narrative, or you wouldn't be formed within your narrative. So the less investment you give the thoughts you have as being so true the less there will be fear make sense so what would you do differently if you weren't afraid I leave you with that question as the conclusion of the talk. How would you act now if you weren't afraid? Ask yourself in the moment of fear, when you see the compelling way that fear takes you into an action, a contraction, an avoidance, a repression. How would I act now if I weren't afraid? Which means, how would I act now if I weren't invested in the narrative of fear? It allows the possibility. It invokes the possibility of presence in the moment through that question. How would I act now? What would I do now? Okay. Can we sit for a moment or two? I'll, the rest of the talk will be presented next week. <laughs> okay. See, as, you, as we sit, the space that you sit within is not isolated within the narrative it reaches beyond the narrative in fact the narrative the thoughts are are like sky riding within that space it holds it doesn't try to do anything to it lets it fade in and fade out as it will that's true city meditation following each tracer of thought, compelling yourself forward with each, with each sentence we speak, doesn't lead you out of fear. It assures that fear will have its own voice within your life. Okay, so any questions or comments? (laughs) Non-political? Right, so that uh, the, the, the knowledge base you bring to this problem isn't sufficient to be able to handle the problem in the perfect way. Okay. So, we're never, I mean, we never have enough knowledge. We never have a total access to all the knowledge necessary to make any decision. I mean, we have sufficient. I, I, I often think that we have too much and it causes hesitation or indecision because all of the different pieces come into play and, you're, and we're just flitting from piece to piece trying to determine an appropriate action and we can't settle on any of them because how do you ever know? You don't know what the action will lead to. You don't know the fruits of that action. You never will. As long as you tie your indecisiveness or your decision to what you, the fruits, the results, then you're kind of leading it in the wrong way. We really don't have any control over the results. We can do our homework, we can get our knowledge, and then you just do and you act as appropriately as you can given the circumstances. The results of that action are a completely different matter. They are really not of your making. They are what the universe does on its own and comes back on its own. So, if the less, t- less we spend thinking about trying to make the perfect result happen, the more time we have in feeling what is appropriate to do, which isn't often knowledge-based. It's often circumstantial. It's often much more intuitive than knowledge-based. Knowledge helps. There's no question knowing a certain circumstance and the configuration of that circumstance, but the intuitive sense of that really does lead at a certain appropriate with a certain appropriateness that knowledge can't can't hold. And too much knowledge, I think, builds an indecision, an indecisiveness, because you know too much about everywhere you're gonna move. And so there isn't a relaxation and ease to just do what's appropriate. There's the fear of what each action may end as a result, right? Welcome, David. I know, I mean, when we had our cat, it got afraid and ran. I mean, that's all it did. And then it would come back. (laughs) It didn't didn't seem to have a, didn't, it didn't have a self-reprimand. Oh, I don't know why I ran from that dog. Next time I'm (laughs) going. It just flew. I always admired this this approach. But it's our image, I think. It's the way we both handle the fact of what fear is to us as a culture. You know, that it's not okay to be afraid, that you that you need to, you know, sort of be the empowered person here and all that. And also it leads to a kind of self-examination because we think that it's wrong to have fear. It leads to a kind of a self-examination that really... Betrays the fact of what its intention is is to get you out of harm's way, and that self-examination really takes you takes us deeper into harm's way, as we try to overcome the genetic establishment of fear. Fear has a reason for being there, and I think we should. Most often, it's appropriately tuned. Right? So. It's, it's just all muddled within the image of how we handle ourselves and what we think about ourselves and how we try to become an ideal person that's, well, in Boy Scout language, is brave. What is it, a 10-year-old boy being brave? What does that mean? You go up and pick up the rattlesnake? To a 10-year-old boy, that's what it means to be brave. So, Anyway. a lack of fear where there shouldn't be and then intense fear around things that are sort of you know, have no reason to be fearful of and so I think he's trying to be with them on how to like put fear in the right place and take it out <laughs> <laughs> Yeah you know I, I'm not really um, I, I'm not really knowledgeable enough to talk about trauma from that point of view but I do I certainly know mis, misplaced fear most many people forms of fear are misplaced. They're exaggerated. Fear is always exaggerated. It's it's saying, out of a number of possibilities, it says this worst case scenario is what's going to happen if you continue forward. As if it knew. Right? As if, like out of a 52-card deck, you picked the queen of spades every time. And so, one of the ways that you start learning about discerning the truth of fear is playing that card and seeing that the queen of spades is not what happens you keep playing through the scenario and seeing that oh that didn't happen i I snuck out at first you 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 claim you know that you were lucky or whatever but after a while you see that it doesn't know it's just a voice inside of you that warns you and it takes the worst possible warning And so you go, oh, okay, well, you you honor that that's one possibility. Quite likely it is a possibility, but it's not the only one. And that often, through discernment, after a number of times, you really realize that much of fear is misplaced in that way. Now, for somebody who has had a life of abuse and trauma, I suspect that the body is full of miscues like that. What... To be touched a certain way or to be uh, calm or quiet or relaxed because these incidents may have happened at night before anything like that. The conditioned reference of when these things happen could all hold a fear tone associated with them. And so to me, that needs much more specialty. Uh, therapeutic specialty that I'm able to give meditation instructions. But that to know, though, that if they're exposed, if they're looked at, if they're brought into the light of attention, over time, that conditioning does weaken. It does not stay the same. Every time you look at something that's falsely linked, that deconditions you from that reactivity pattern that seems so sh- true at one point. And that I can hold out as a salvation to any of us who have had a life of fear. Okay. I appreciate the fact that you forego election returns. <laughs> but it'll probably be the first thing you turn on when you go home.